Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for joining us tonight in the Creepypasta Book Club, the podcast where we read, analyze, and discuss significant creepypastas, no sleeps, and web horror flash fiction. We are your hosts, Jonah. And Wednesday. And today, we are discussing Tales from the Gas Station, Part 2, Christmas from the Gas Station, and Upside Down. Jack has no interest in anything in the world because he's dying. He's perfectly content to mind his business and pass his days in peace at the worst gas station in America. A woman named Rosa has come on staff as the third part-timer. She's very good, but asks a lot of questions. On her first night, Jerry wanders in, even though he's not on shift. He steals whiskey and cigarettes and leaves, heading back out into the oncoming snowstorm. They get a call from Spencer, who's been stalking Jack for months, toying with him. Jerry stumbles back in, drunk, because the roads are closed from the snowstorm, which he knows because of the radio he built that picks up weird frequencies from a number station that reports 24-7 on random stuff in town, often impossible things to know. Once they began listening dedicatedly, the radio broadcast noticed them too. Jerry disassembled it, but he seems to have built it again. The power goes out. Jack gets the emergency supplies, more than enough for the four of them, but the fourth figure is just the new sheriff's deputy, O'Brien. Spencer calls, and Jack puts him on speaker. Spencer is watching the gas station from somewhere nearby, and O'Brien slams the phone down and huddles them into the storage closet. Rosa and Jerry fall asleep for a few hours, but Rosa bolts upright and begins shrieking out prophetic visions. An unfathomable evil is coming, and if he gets what he wants, he will turn all living things into an endless battery of suffering. O'Brien tases her. She falls onto Jerry and both of them wake up. They go out to the main room to patch Rosa up and find Spencer half-dead and beaten to hell, slumped against the door. O'Brien brings him in and cuffs his unconscious body. They duct tape him to a chair and put the chair in the storage closet and nail the door shut. Something starts pounding on the roof. They think Spencer has escaped and pry the nails off the door. He has not escaped. He is very much there and now very much awake. They shut the door. The team splits up so Jerry and Jack can investigate the noise, and O'Brien gives Jerry her gun. The gutter is full of dead birds, which is what seems to have caused the noise. While they're outside, Jerry confesses after some prompting that he did rebuild the radio, and in addition to the forecast, it told him that Sagoth has risen. Someone sneezes from down the road, and when they scramble for the gun, they realize that a raccoon has stolen it. Jerry calls out to the voice, and its owner approaches. It's Donald Glover! They're so excited to see him that they immediately lead him inside. Benjamin calls for a status update, and Jack tells him about the Sagoth report. Benjamin is horrified. Sagoth is a shape-shifting demon that tortures and skins his victims. Jack expresses his relief that they found Donald Glover before Sagoth did. Benjamin demands that they cut that man's head off now, which is the only way to kill a demon, and hangs up. Jack breaks the news to Jerry, who is immediately on board with decapitation. They don't have time to talk to Rosa and O'Brien before Spencer's phone begins ringing in the storage closet. Everyone pretends they don't hear anything when Donald Sagoth points out that there's obviously a phone ringing in there. He dashes for the door, and when he opens it, Spencer puts on an act and begs to be saved from the murderous maniacs in the gas station. Jack tries to get everyone to come clean, accusing Donald of being Sagoth, but Spencer still won't drop the act, and Jack starts to panic. Donald Glover runs out of the gas station, and O'Brien chases after him. Spencer finally breaks character to laugh. He starts trying to manipulate Rosa using Jack's past and the Kiefer incident, and he and Jerry lock him in the cooler. O'Brien runs back in, and Jerry accuses her of being Sagoth. Jack tricks her into going into the cooler to get Spencer's phone, and locks her in there too. 
Rosa freaks out about it, but Jack insists she must be the demon. She was calling him Jack. O'Brien only ever calls him nicknames. Suddenly, O'Brien runs into the gas station all over again, and Rosa faints. They explain the situation to probably real O'Brien, and then the snowplow arrives ahead of schedule. He wants to get a refill on gas, and O'Brien derisively calls Jack, Jack, on her way out to help him, when Rosa starts floating and shrieking again not to open the door. There's something on the roof. They look out and see a horrific, mind-shattering beast which grabs the driver and effortlessly mashes him. As they search for weapons, Rosa toddles in with the driver's gun, which she somehow went and got, and O'Brien confiscates it. They decide Spencer is their best bet and fling open the cooler door, but he gets the upper hand, getting Rosa in a chokehold with a sharpened pencil to her neck and O'Brien disarmed. Spencer is knocked out by another Spencer, and there's a scramble for the gun, which Jack wins. Spencer goes for Jack when Spencer jumps up and tackles him. They fight, and Jack can't decide which one to shoot before Jerry throws a Molotov cocktail at them. One Spencer catches it, and the other punches it to pieces, creating a big, stupid alcohol explosion. One Spencer runs out in the madness that ensues, and the other turns into Rosa. They bust the shapeshifter, and she puts them all to sleep with magic, except Jack, who can't sleep. He starts shooting the shapeshifter in a tantrum until the shapeshifter explains himself. He is Sagoth's keeper, and humans have simply conflated the shapeshifter with the murder demon, and he's actually here to help put Sagoth back to sleep. The shapeshifter takes off, and Jack cleans up. Later that morning, Spencer comes back in and forces Jack out into the woods. He slices Jack's pinky finger off and uses him as bait, but if he survives long enough for Spencer to get what he wants, he'll let Jack live. Tom, the dead deputy, appears and tells Jack that Sagoth has smelled his blood and is coming for him, but Sagoth cannot harm him as long as Jack keeps his eyes closed. Sagoth does mind games on Jack to make him open his eyes, but he refuses. The shapeshifter finishes the spell to seal Sagoth and congratulates Jack on surviving, when Spencer shoots a harpoon through her chest and drags her away. Spencer, as promised, saves Jack from bleeding or freezing to death, and in retaliation, Jack picks the gun out of his pocket and shoots him in the chest, impressing him. Spencer flees, Jack goes to the hospital to recover, and on Christmas Day he receives a matryoshka box with his severed pinky inside, and a Christmas note from Spencer. Some time later, in an unrelated incident, Jack ends up hanging upside down in ten-foot chains in an underground building in the woods near the gas station, and Jerry is with him. Their captor comes in wearing a bloody apron and a Donnie Darko mask. He's some guy Jack knows from school called Bo, who is a weird little dumb racist. Bo has been casing the gas station for weeks, really obviously, and Jack figured he was just going to rob them. Instead, he kidnaps Jack and Jerry and hangs them up above a pentagram, and also some guy named Mel, who was a new part-timer. Mel is already dead, though, and Bo lowers him and uses his blood to try and summon the demon Tarragon to be his immortal evil servant. Bo stabs Mel, who was just passed out the whole time, and Mel jumps up screaming and punches Bo in the face before taking off. Bo returns miserable and wipes the blood from his broken nose, spattering it onto the floor while he sobs about how powerful he's going to be, only to be compelled to slit his own throat by the voice of the demon. He fails to kill himself in a variety of ways, and Jerry volunteers to murder him. Jerry shoots him in the foot while he's making impotent threats and then smokes a cigarette like a cool guy. The burning barrels around them, giving ambient light, swirl and flare as the portal opens, and the demon inside drags Bo into hell. Jerry closes the portal by pissing on Bo's blood. They walk their asses out, and the only unanswered question is this. Who hired Bo to summon this demon? Probably Spencer. So what do we think? I think that was it, guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs>
So, like, we bitch a lot in the last one. We complained a lot about our problems with it. But I think we can both agree that we like the, okay. uh, the Christmas stuff a lot more. Yeah. Guys, the Donald Glover joke is really good. <laughs> okay. These, this, two, this section of reading encapsulates, like, the best of the series and also the worst because the Upside Down sucks so fucking much. Oh, God, it's really fucking it's bad. It's so bad. And, <laughs> and it comes after this this beautiful high note. And there's, like, dumb stuff in the Christmas <laughs> one, but the Donald Glover yeah. thing is so fucking good. And the, Spen- and, the, and the end bit with Spencer is really good and Jerry's really good in it. All the Spencer stuff is really, really good oh, in the, in the so Christmas good. part. There's, like, little bits of, like, Rosa and the cop lady. I forgot that Rosa was a character, even though I remember her <laughs> plot arc really distinctly. I was like, oh, right, she exists here. <laughs> Rosa, I'm pretty sure, is meant to be, like, a reference to that vampire the masquerade character yeah I, yeah uh, who's also named rosa and is like a like a weird prophet yeah most definitely which is fun considering we've also talked about ben drowned so like vampire the masquerade is as like a sort of paratext in both of these things that we've uh we have mixed feelings about yeah <laughs> this one feels real the christmas one feels really homage yes feels very homage we talked about like how welcome to like this is built a lot on welcome to night bill stuff and in this uh-huh. one there's like a radio guy and there's yeah. devils yeah like it it really feels like it's leaning like in in the first reading i can understand someone arguing like no this isn't meant to be night valley strictly like this mm-hmm. is stuff that a lot of series have but like at this point, the level of coincidence is kind of too much, and the tone also feels more like yeah, the Nightdale tone. Yeah, much, much more. I feel like the Christmas one is meant to be like a gift, like, look at all these references I can pull out, but then it gets, like, <laughs> kneaded back into the main body of the story, so the fact that this is, like, a, a special edition gets sort of, like, lost in the folds of the whole thing. There's not actually a lot of... I mean, there is a lot of material in Gas Station. There's not a lot of free-to-play material in mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. Gas Station. Like, a lot of the stuff that, like, is not readily available online for free is in mm-hmm. book form. And outside of the books, there's yeah. actually not that much material just, just in the like... Gas Station continuity. Like, if you don't listen to or, or, or don't read Finding Vanessa... Which which we're not doing because like finding Vanessa is fucking intolerable. You know that you know what that was that was the that was him doing his Baroska. Is that what it's called? That fucking what? That oh Baraska? Baraska. I can never remember what it's called. I always I always <laughs> do the O, not the A or whatever. Yeah, it's that was him geeking off that. It has a very similar tone and kind of like plot stuff. And that one sucks a lot. I, I've never gotten to the end of Finding Vanessa. I just find it really fucking intolerable oh, to read. Oh, it's like, it's not like super explicit in that same sort of way, but it has that vibe of like... It, it doesn't have that sort of like shock horror thing that Baraska does. Yeah, because it's also not about <laughs> incestuous pregnancy stuff that the author's <laughs> yeah. on. But it has the very same sort of trafficking vibe in a rural uh, town. There's also like a puppet. I know about the puppet. Yeah, the puppet has something to do with either either creep, be pastas, <laughs> but like, 
Puppet stuff is so horny, just in general. What? Okay, yeah. What is up? What is with, what is with people in puppets? It's just, they just make people so horny. <laughs> like, even when that's not the intent, just, like, the palpable horniness comes through when people do puppet stuff. Like, what? what is it about that? I don't know. It's we should we could do a deep dive, but even stuff that's not like in creepy pasta zone, like Digimon, every every puppet type is like BDSM, <laughs> like a, a a moist time. Maybe it's something about the idea of like the physical manipulation involved in puppetry. Like either like you have your hand up the thing's ass, which you know that's <laughs> that's like sex. Intimate. Or it's like you're you're making the thing move on its own. And the sort of like historical associations, I guess, with puppets and like body plays. Like yeah. the, the, the idea of like you can do representative stuff with puppets in like a more censorious era that you couldn't do with your human actors. Yeah, like a lot of like scandalous things you would do with like a physical prop, like a puppet or whatever. Like, they're, they're simultaneously childlike and also very weirdly horny in, yeah. in a lot of... An imp. A scam. <laughs> I guess the same sort of, like, thing with dolls, though. Like, there's lots of stuff that puppets have. There's a lot of sexualized stuff with dolls. I don't think there's a lot of strictly horny stuff for dolls. Like, that sort of ambient horniness that gets applied to, like, puppetry. Puppets are, like, base-level horny. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, even in, like, Goosebumps, like, when there's a puppet in there, the puppet's, like, sleazy. <laughs> yeah! Why are puppets always, like, sleazy and nasty and, like, fucking and each other do- on stage? And, like, we know! It's, like, it's like a shorthand. Avenue Q doing the puppet sex is like a big gag. Like yeah, we don't even need, you don't even need to be told it. We're just like yeah, puppets horny. It's like we know. <laughs> or like you know, homestuck puppet fucking jokes, smuppets and stuff, which seems to be in a way coded for child porn in the same way that it's about like. Wanting to fuck something weird and small and innocent looking and without agency or like watch them fuck each other. The like there's this accidental sexuality of a of a gag character because sex is funny and humor gets people horny. I remember when Boku no Pico was the biggest meme on earth because the idea of cartoon kitty porn was inherently funny to people. It's like shocking and strange. And and some people who were into it for the meme were using that meme as an excuse to put their sick fucking fetish material out there. It's it's like the contrast between, because puppets are associated both with children's plays and also with the plays where the puppets mash their little bodies together. Yeah. Just strange. Just very weird. We should... I'd, I'd be interested in, in... Yeah, researching, like, <laughs> I don't know, like... But also, like, I hate puppets puppets. so much. Yeah, you do. (laughs) I like puppets a lot. Like, uh, like, the the topic at hand aside. (laughs) Yeah, like, you're you're interested in puppets. You think puppets are cool. I do think puppets are cool. As a child, I'd steal, like, the books on puppetry out from the library. (laughs) They had puppetry books in the library? Yeah, it's... Yeah. The huh. library's full of knowledge. 
This has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Oh, and like, absolutely like, nothing to do with what we're no, talking about. No, absolutely nothing. <laughs> but, like, okay, when I was little, I would get, like, as many books as I could on a topic and, like, read them simultaneously. And one time I was, like, <laughs> at the library in my bat era, and I had, like, a whole bunch of those, like, discovery bat books and stuff open <laughs> around me. And this, like, in my mind, she was, like, older, older, but she was probably just, like, in her 20s or something, or maybe, like, a mm-hmm. teenager with, like, a girl who was, like, more my age, and I was, like, maybe, like, I don't know, like, six here. But she mm-hmm. was, like, she, like, pointed at me and was, like, don't you ever do that. Don't ever become that. What, whatever the wording was, is like, like, something <laughs> like that. And the girl was, like, the girl who was with her was, like, okay. And, like, she walked away, and I was just, like, What? What? <laughs> Don't ever develop an interest. Genuinely how parents talk to their children. Yeah. And I was thinking about that today. (laughs) What a fucking weird thing to say. Yeah. Like, I had just the rudest encounters living in that place. We were we were talking a little bit about continuity and the and the thinness of it. Like to circle back around to that before we got uh-huh. distracted talking about puppets. Uh, <laughs> a thing I noticed in the Christmas thing that did really annoy me actually was uh-huh. the number of callbacks yeah. that oh, were not super awful. relevant and like didn't yeah. feel like you know like calling Benjamin having to talk to him to learn about. Yeah, or, like, Spencer unable to pick out a, a time further back than when this thing was made. Yeah, just, just saying, like, you you killed my boss and Kiefer, and, like, bringing up stuff that we've already seen happen very, very recently. Like, girl, this happened five minutes Yesterday. ago. yeah. This is Jack's deep, dark secret that he's so scared of Rosa finding out. We saw this. We just saw this. Yeah. There's, like, fun in that part, in that, like... Uh, Spencer catches him like misspeaking and they have like this <laughs> this moment and stuff but it's like we just read that like I guess if you were posting on reddit like people would read it like oh without reading the other part and they're like oh I have to understand this I have to go back and read this and that's <laughs> fine but like that's annoying for anyone who has like conscious thought going on <laughs> Because there's not a lot of stuff in between, like literally the only thing separating the the first arc that we read from this mm-hmm. was this little snippet where like the bipedal deer comes in. I was going to include that in the summary, but it literally doesn't matter. Like nothing happens. It's just like a story about a weird deer coming in. There needed to be, if not a couple more one shots, at least like another like half an arc before you start bringing up, like, Jack, think of these horrible things that you did five minutes ago. Like, when you do a callback, it should feel like a treat for the reader, but instead this feels like key jingling. It feels like, hey, remember when this happened? This was a thing that you liked. Because people obviously really liked the stupid joke where Jack keeps killing Kiefer. Ugh. I hate when stuff get. I hate when stuff, like, I don't know, not self-indulgent, because some that's not the right phrase I want to use. It's just sort of like, I don't know. You know that thing. That thing is new. It's like an IP thing. It's like a brandy. It's, it's being like overly self-aware. Yeah. 
I read the deer one. I'm probably gonna go back and read Finding Vanessa just to like place it in like the the content of what we're doing. But I didn't do Finding Vanessa yet, even though that comes between these two. But I did read the deer one. It's okay. Yeah. It's long. It's it's way too long for what it is. Yeah, he really belabors a lot of stuff. I mean, because he's trying to do it in like a humorous way, it it, it also did make me think. Wow. This was really the era that, like, not deer were taking off as well. Yeah. Like, oh, that's so annoying. I, I will say one thing for, for the gas station author is that, like, he does have his finger on the pulse. It's, yeah. It's on the pulse of stupid shit that I hate, but, like, he does know what's about to pop off. Yeah, he's in the trenches. He's, like, stockbroker is on the floor of the trade thingy. He's, like... <laughs> He knows the prices are going to drop or whatever. <laughs> a day trader? Yeah. Like, okay, he, the way he uses gaslight in this part, in the Christmas party was really, like... Yeah! <laughs> that did also make me laugh, particularly because it's like, oh, wow, this is, like, an instance of gaslight before the internet ruined the word. And it is also literally, like, the original definition of, of gaslight. Yeah. When, when Donald Glover says, oh, you're gonna gaslight now, too? But it's, like, the, but like, it's the way everyone uses it now. <laughs> but, like, in the correct, like, context of it. And just, like, trendsetter. Yeah. This is more literal gaslighting when oh. when you go back to like origin of the term than a lot of the stuff that people now call gaslighting just, like, use it as like a gotcha like oh no you don't want to be that <laughs> what if i think we need a tower of babel too you just like scramble it <laughs> with with the kefir mm-hmm. stuff one of the things that i kept thinking not to be character should have done this uh-huh. but it's also like i don't understand why that catches Jack so off guard when he is such a flippant and, like, unflappable kind of guy. Like, the response that I would expect from him is to be like, oh, I I didn't kill him on purpose. Or, like, oh, Kiefer was just a plant or something like that. And, like, Rosa can still react with horror because that's an insane thing to say. But, like, the fact that he's just kind of like... Oh, who hasn't killed Kiefer? (laughs) Yeah. A stiff breeze could kill Kiefer. Yeah, oh yeah, that's good. I do appreciate, I appreciate the fact that he's a plant. Who's a plant? (laughs) (laughs) The way you said plant just now, I was like, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) You got me, mister. In general, I feel like the writing on Jack is like, I, I don't know what the author is going for in this segment. Like, like I guess he's realized that the whole apathetic, don't care about anything shtick kind of wears off mm-hmm. pretty quickly. So instead he's decided to go for like, oh, this guy is like actually fucked up and like sad and traumatized. And he's pretending that he's not. He's compartmentalizing. But like, I don't know. I feel like the way that, okay, when someone is actually... Mm-hmm like that when someone is actually like compartmentalizing Mm -hmm. because of the fact that this is first person perspective the fact that he tells us that he is thinking about these terrible things and that he's so traumatized and stuff but he's just pushing it down it makes it feel really phony and stupid (laughs) i like the idea of him being an unreliable narrator tm but like not in the way that the author clearly is intending for him to be (laughs) like 
Because I like the idea that's like, okay, like clearly Spencer is running a thing. He's he's clearly, you know, he wants stuff to, but I do like the idea that they perhaps have more in common than Jack is letting us on to. It's like his blog and stuff. He's not going to tell you everything. <laughs> also, I wrote I mean, like- Jerry's name like 11 times in my notes. <laughs> Jerry is doing a lot of stuff in this. Yeah. Two two thoughts that I have. Like one I guess is that like I don't think that the author is if he is going for an unreliable narrator thing with Jack, he is being wildly unsuccessful. No, yeah. I don't think that's the intent, but it's nice to read into. He is not giving us any reason to actually think that Jack is not representing the truth other than the fact that this is an obvious fiction that we're reading. And I guess the implication that people who are crazy and stuff the way that Jack is supposed to be are like supposed to be naturally unreliable so who knows he could be making the whole thing up and so on. Except that we know that he's not because we have other narrators in like Jerry and the Vanessa guy who confirm aspects of his reality. And this is sort of like a era of posting where people were being like super honest with each other, of being like, there's <laughs> not really a lot of like, oh, I got you, I was lying the whole time, sort of stories <laughs> happening at this time. It was just sort of like really earnest, like weird core situations. Yeah, I mean, because this is part of the the weird job um, Mm -hmm. epistolary kind of style that people were doing, which relies on you believing in the narrator and you trusting the narrator to create the investment in the story, because otherwise you were just reading someone lying to you, right? It's it's complicated. It's like a, a bit of complicated writing to also thread the lying. And I think it's out of a lot of wheelhouse. Like, people don't even understand, people don't, like, realize that's a thing they can even attempt when they do this <laughs> sort of thing. I want Jack to be kind of, like, tortured and fucked up. I just don't want him to tell you to your face. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't want him saying all of his thoughts out loud to the reader, you know? I want there to be some subtext to it. You know what's also really bad? I <laughs> want a better <laughs> sentence than that. In the same kind of level of disappointment of Jack, I think what they, I like Spencer a lot. We were talking about how much we like Spencer. Yeah. I think it's a really, (laughs) uh, I don't want to use the word lazy, but like in that genre of word of having the shapeshifter person be like, I could look into Spencer when I was in Spencer's form and it's like a black void. He's like a table. That doesn't really come off his character when you say stuff like that like he has like okay i am hoping like i haven't read to the end of of gas station obviously Mm -hmm. i'm hoping that where that's going is that spencer is going to literally not be human it's not that he doesn't have emotions or whatever but that he is just like literally not able to be perceived by this thing even though it can copy his form that's really fun i know that that's not where it's gonna go because it's cop-out yeah it's, it's, just, it's like, just being he's like so evil and twisted oh like yeah, he's, he's so fucked up twisted psychopath he's such a sociopath he has no real emotions there's nothing going on in but there like, that like if you're trying to convey a level of violence for a character just have the shapeshifter like i looked in there and like holy fuck end it that's all you, don't, you just <laughs> like you just 
<laughs> like yikes. How the characters say yikes. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> like... Also with Jerry, all like this is related to Spencer, but like Jerry in this, like it there's kind of some flanderization, yeah. I think, going on with Jerry as as time goes on. I think he gets like a cool little arc later, but like right now, it, it's really <laughs> like that. And I don't hate it in particular. He but... has too much crossover with Spencer yeah. is the problem. Like he, they're not being made distinctive enough. Like Jerry is more like boisterous and like random core, but he is like him being like a dead-eyed murder freak ends up <laughs> undercutting the fact that Spencer yeah. is supposed to be, you know, the most evil fucked up psychopath in the world when Jerry is like, yeah, I'll kill you. I don't give a shit. <laughs> like The only thing separating him from Spencer is how horny he is in this part. <laughs> I mean, as if Spencer's actions aren't no, a little, Spencer, a little fresh. That's what I'm saying. Like, like, like Spencer <laughs> is like, yeah. You guys, Spencer is in love with Jack. Like, we were talking about, like, why, like, Jerry's yeah. jokes about it, but, like, he is. Like, we're like, hey, why doesn't Spencer just kill this guy? Because he's crazy freaking <laughs> in love with him. Yeah! He, like... <laughs> Spencer is brutally efficient in everything that he does. Like, the only time that he ever, like, stops and gloats about something (laughs) is when he's playing with Jack. Normally, he just gets in, gets out. But with Jack, he's like, oh, teehee, I'm gonna tell you all about our evil plans. Aren't I so smart? You're the Batman of my jokers. Like, (laughs) slur. He's like... He's like, oh, I, I told you I'd save you, even though I'm, like, the evilest person in this entire story. <laughs> also, we're just like this one ship. <laughs> like, in 2017, there's no way this guy does not know the things that people think about the relationship between Batman and the Joker. Regardless of whether you think that it is reciprocated in anything, it is yeah, by now a trope just... that the Joker is, like, a horny crazy in love with Batman. And stuff that's and stuff that has an absence of lady love interest, they're like <laughs> homoerotic, and that is the scene we're in. And we get like sp- we get like Jack being like all blooded up and like tied up and stuff. He's like, "Hey, um, I can pick your pockets and like shoot you with a gun." And like, what is more <laughs> phallic than a gun? What is more penetrating than a bullet from another man? <laughs> and also, we were talking last night. We were like goof goofing, but not actually goofing about um about the Batman and Joker thing. The fact that Jack is th- this is the thing that you said Wednesday, and I'm quoting yeah. you because it was a very smart thing. Uh, <laughs> that in, in in that moment, like Spencer is saying, like you're the Batman to my Joker, and blah blah blah. And then Jack takes the gun and shoots him with it. The thing about Batman is that he doesn't use guns. And yeah. he doesn't, I mean, like, Jack doesn't kill him. But, like, Batman is really strictly anti-gun. And in this moment, Jack is, like, subverting this belief that Spencer has about Jack and about the two of their, like, relationship. And Spencer is, like, I cannot be convinced that in this moment... He is not just, like, hard eyes, like, over the moon, like, oh, my lame-ass Batman is actually, like, as fucked up as I am. We're made for each other. Because Jack is looking deeply into his eyes, he does not see Spencer's heart on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, these bitches get...
and like they talk about dog lover in a really horny way and, <laughs> yeah. and jerry's like hey is jack circumcised out of nowhere i'm like sure there's times you could have seen his penis but like he says it really confidently <laughs> and he's like hey do you think there's a better chance or a worse chance of having a gas station orgy now that there are women here like they were not they were not in the equation until they were there it's do you think there's better chance of having an orgy now that donald glover is here it has nothing to do with the women <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i i do also like the way that jack and jerry but especially the way that jack is like nerding out about donald glover and the things that it tells you about his character like okay he is he is a childish gambino fan he is probably a community fan like okay things we now know about jack he's he's a fan of hard-boiled detective novels and childish gambino like (laughs) this good characterization (laughs) yeah he's been kind of a blank slate for a while just being like you know generic protagonist guy but now it's like oh he's he he has actually some interests other than trying not to get killed it's a pretty good way to like convey a lot of things about a person because like having an interest (laughs) suggests other things about you not in just like i read a book i like read a specific genre and that leads me to a specific sort of thinking yeah i like like in a lot of his like misunderstanding of the situation is because he's like I just got finished reading this detective novel and I was in the moment, right? <laughs> and, like, music you're interested in and stuff like that. Actors you like. It suggests, like, a, a world. Like, there's a stereotype about the type of guy that's really into Childish Gambino, or at least yeah. there was around this time. Yeah, and, de- and Jack <laughs> is definitely meant to be that, even though it's sort of, like, been lost in the sands of time yeah. looking back. But, like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, like, this is well before This is America, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. Wow, what a timeline changer. Because, <laughs> like, that totally altered uh, Donald Glover's reputation, because he'd always been considered, like, the corniest of the corny <laughs> among hip-hop artists. Like, Yeah, like, if we updated this, it would have to be, like, um, oh, fuck, what's that? This is just rude, because, like, their art is fine, but what's the group that has the, like, the Hamilton actor Um, guy? Clipping? Clipping, yes. If we updated Jack's, like, cred, it would be, like, that guy, instead of Donald Glover here in the Christmas thing. I think, honestly, Clipping isn't popular enough. Like, for all that, by 2017, people found Childish Gambino, like, corny or cringy or, like, on some soft boy shit. Like, I, I remember when Redbone came out and it was mainstream. You could hear it in a mall. But you don't hear clipping at the mall. Jack in 2023 would be listening to, like, Post Malone or MGK. Okay, yeah, This Is America came out in May 2018. So, like, I'm pretty sure this story came out before that. Dibby Diggs, he, that, that's the guy in clipping. Yes, people view him in a... Like, as though he is corny. Which I think is just, like, not very fair. It's not his fault. (laughs) Yeah. People now view Debbie Diggs unfairly because of the fact that he is now associated with Hamilton and Lin-Manuel Miranda forever. Yeah, that's not- yeah, that's not his fault. The curse. The bear of the curse. He's- he's a great performer. I'm- I'm not a huge fan of clipping, personally, but, like- 
Diggs is an amazing performer. Like, yeah. you can't deny that. I like their one, that one Halloween one, that one's really good. I can't remember what it's <laughs> called. Hey, we should talk about The Mist, I think. The Mist? Like yeah. the movie? Yeah. Or book? I, I've never, I've never read. I've never read the book either, whatever. <laughs> Wasn't this really Mistcore? I, I guess there were definitely, um, glass windows involved and like looking out of a glass window <laughs> like, a mo- like a monster in like the snowstorm fog and like gas station survival <laughs> well it's a grocery store in the mist yeah yeah god the mist is really fucking bad you guys like yeah i was we were all so furious about the last literally minute of the movie it's such a mean thing to do <laughs> It's so fucking, like, you, you want to talk about, like, edgelord horseshit. Yeah. <laughs> for what? For nothing. It wasn't even whatever. Just whatever for a few hours. <laughs> Just read through, but, like, read the mist is a creature feature more than anything, really. This read through is making me, like, realize how much the gas station stuff is a creature feature because like he gets in mm. he gets really meaty about like the monster descriptions and stuff and it's really standing out to me this time he, yeah he's really excited to tell you his cool monster design like everyone is which is everyone fun when looks- he describes like a really generic looking demon <laughs> <laughs> yeah it makes me and like ugh, and it's very like current indie horror scene so it was just like a a guy who's kind of like fleshy and yeah he's like whatever we looked out and we saw a beast that was so horrific that it genuinely broke my mind to even see it his head was a skull and it and it had like bare muscle looking body like girl the capra demon (laughs) what's up it broke his brain because he was, like, so hot for it. <laughs> and he can't make out his vlog. There's a lot of selling, like, overselling, I would mm-hmm. say, for stuff that is not actually described very interesting. And, like, mm-hmm. like the prose is not even that compelling to talk yeah. about how hor- horrifying. It's, it's very... It's like the Lovecraft maneuver, almost, yeah. of, of being like, I'm describing it this way, but, like, you don't understand. It was actually a million times worse, and, like, earthly words can't do it justice. Well, yeah, it's just like, <laughs> I, I feel like there's ways to do that. It's just, like, not like that in a believable way. Yeah. The the fractal arm in Upside Down, at least, is a pretty okay design. Like, that that's a fun concept. Yeah, it's, it's too fun. bad that Upside Down is horrible. Oh, it sucks so much. I want let's let's tie how much upside down sucks to something that sucks in the Christmas one. Like <laughs> okay. Like Saul's like there's a there's like that racist like bus driver guy. He goes yeah, into this yeah. long like he's racist and sexist and jealous of things. I'm like I, I also believe... made a note about this. Good, good, good. I believe in a nasty rule character. I think it's kind of really disingenuous when people are like, actually, the rule is full of progressive and nice people. Like, um, yeah, sure. <laughs> but like, when people talk and share about these things, they're not lying about how awful it is and how difficult it can be. But like, <laughs> him doing this here, it doesn't feel like it's coming from a, a real place. 
when he's doing like this and like especially with the bow character he's like this character is racist let me also give you a bunch of things that i the author disagree with it's like this is no longer like a real person it's just i don't know one thing about saul and then one thing about bow with Saul, I complained about how unnecessarily cruel the, the caterpillar moment is in mm-hmm. the first reading. This feels like it is on the opposite end of the spectrum from that, where it's still, like, cheap and a cop-out, where it's, like, Saul is made so, like, awful and distasteful that it is totally chicken shit to have this yeah. guy here to kill him. Because, like, because we yeah. know that this author is too pussy to actually kill any of his major characters. Yeah, right? that's it. That's it. This could have been a normal guy, and it it would have been, like, a normal-ish tragedy that he died. But yeah. instead, we're allowed to not feel very bad for, like, this guy getting crazy murdered by a yeah. demon. Because he's, like, a racist to beat his wife and kids. Yeah, like, it's stupid. Like, a person like that can exist, but, like, introducing a person like that and being and having the characters who are, like, now morally just being, like, oh, well, haha, like, that doesn't belong to the story you're making is a thing. Like, something like that can <laughs> exist in Welcome to Night Vale, because they... That's another thing about Welcome to Night Vale. It makes it, like, the region really, really nice, and it undercuts some of, like, <laughs> the issues these regions face. Like, the, a, a big problem with Night Vale is that, like, they wanted to do this, like, really nasty, grimy satire, but yeah. then they sort of lose a lot of that heat because they don't want to actually deal with things like racism and sexism and homophobia, things that actually happen in bad small towns. Yeah, so they just create they- <laughs> this, like, queer utopia that people can buy into with merch and stuff instead yeah. of, like... Uh, cutting commentary of like people's lives for real. Yeah, and it's and it's not even like this is a thing that the people in Nightvale end up creating for themselves mm-hmm. by you know changing things over time. It's just yeah. always been a town where like the only hint of any kind of racism that you get in Nightvale comes from like a couple of throwaway lines in the book. Like, mm-hmm. that is literally it. That is the only indication that racism has ever existed in Night <laughs> Or like, or like, oh, 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 here's the thing with Saul and, like, Bo and, like, that thing Night Vale that we're talking about is, like, racism uh-huh. is done by individual people in the story and they're bad. Yeah. Not that racism is, like, a systematic oppression built into the system of capital which we have. Yeah, which, which is especially bonkers for Night Vale, which is supposed to be a critique of capitalism. Yeah. And a, and a critique of these, like, systemic injustices and stuff. Like, you cannot have modern American capitalism without racism being, an like, an integral part of it. Yeah. Because of the way that the American economic system developed, just, like, as a baseline. The United States becomes a wealthy nation and a world power through the theft and exploitation of the land that is colonized, and that land is then filled with African slaves, and to justify the system of chattel slavery, racism and white supremacy has to be invented and reified. And even when slavery ends, you have sharecropping, you have the importing of Chinese workers who are insanely exploited, Uh, you have propaganda that exists to divide the working class along racial lines. If you have a fictional town where the only bigotry is like fantasy bigotry and not the foundational roots of America in, in exploitation, 
it will be much harder to make a meaningful critique of America and American capitalism. Like, the foundation is racism. Yeah, and it's like, they don't want to engage with that, but they do want to engage with, like, here's the threat of capital, here's the threat of business and stuff. And it's like, well, you can't really do one without the other, otherwise it's going to be, like, juvenile. Yeah, and, and the idea of, like, here's, like, government overreach and FBI and CIA, like, interference yeah. and stuff. Like, hey, impacted. Yeah. the main targets of, of that violence have always been people who weren't white, not just people who were poor or communists. Like, yeah. like if you were a white communist, you can leave the country, you know? If you are a black communist, yeah. you will be killed in your home. Yeah. Like, historically in the United States. That has yeah. always been how the FBI, CIA have dealt with various kinds of, of threats to capital. It's just, it's horseshit. The thing yeah. I had to say about Bo <laughs> is that... A guy this much into clan stuff isn't going to be into the anarchist cookbook stuff, is the thing. <laughs> well, I mean, like, anarchist cookbook is, like, an op, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, you know that, and I know that. But, like, someone <laughs> like Bo wouldn't know that, yeah. is the thing. And that was really annoying to me. The thing that I was gonna say is that, like, okay, it's specifically referenced that he is into Anglo-Saxon pride, Bitch, this man's name is Bo Covillon? This Cajun-ass motherfucker is not celebrating Anglo-Saxon pride. Dumbass. Give him a British name or something. This French son of a bitch is not going around calling himself Anglo-Saxon, please. Yeah, and like, there are people who are into like, that kind of- The French are racist! The French are so racist! You don't have to stretch that much farther. Just like, don't give him a French name and say he's Anglo-Saxon. Fuck you! Yeah, Idiot. Just be ang- yeah. <laughs> it pissed me off so much. Like it's so it's, And then he's also fat on top of it. Like Yeah, he's comically fat, like another instance of that. He's so fatphobic <laughs> in the story that it prevents Jerry from having a beer gut. He should have one. <laughs> I've seen I've seen canonical art or whatever, canon approved art. He should not be that thin. Jerry should be a bear. Yeah. Anytime Jerry is depicted thin within the author's mind is a plot hole. <laughs> oh, upside down is just like nonsense it's soup. Bad. <laughs> like it, it's it's literally nonsense soup is really funny. <laughs> <laughs> I like the Jerry pissing scene, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I like of course the Jerry's... you do. Hey. <laughs> well, I like that he's nasty, is all I can say. <laughs> I, I thought that was kind of like an eye-rolly joke. Well, yeah, it was stupid, but like, I'm, <laughs> I'm clearly not here for the deep literature of the gas station <laughs> story. Yeah, like, okay, good move for his character. I, I think <laughs> more interesting than him just like wanting to plug Bo. Another wretched thing I wrote to show you where I was at during the snow taking was I'm not into impact play, but hi, Spencer, hi. <laughs> Spencer's so funny during this. <laughs> like, like the fact that he obviously knows that the shapeshifter. Yeah, it was any of that. Like, he knows who the shapeshifter is and he's still just like goofing around. <laughs> like, having fun. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I like when he goes, he walks up to the counter and he's like, hey, do you have a band-aid or whatever the fuck he says? Yeah, also, like, okay, oh. 
really funny. Like, so he he shows up like unconscious, beaten to a bloody pulp. <laughs> did he do that to himself? Because the shapeshifter didn't do that to him. Sagoth obviously didn't do that to him. What the fuck happened to Spencer? <laughs> he does. He's like, this is gonna be so funny. <laughs> Just fucking wails on himself and passes out against the gas station door just so he can get inside he can get in whenever he wants another reason why the whole it's just like oh, oh it's like looking into a black hole it's just like a table it's like he does all this funny shit he's like, he's like he's a rich inner world it's just <laughs> yeah he's a, he's a fucking weirdo like he he does things to be like he did that for Jack's attention. <laughs> There's no reason for him to do that. He did that for Jack's attention. He was Jack's is silly bunny. Oh, he doesn't call him that. Oh man, we were also talking. <laughs> We were also talking last night about like when we were when we were making our our bat jokes goofs um, <laughs> about like this is <laughs> the 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 bat jokes role reversal stuff is mm-hmm. probably the most like careful analysis that we are going to do for this entire story and we did it for shipping. Um, yeah, we were and saying what like, fucking uh... hypocrites we are. <laughs> You gotta take your, turn your shipping brain off and engage with media as it's presented. <laughs> but listen, <laughs> this, is, this is different. <laughs> trust, trust us. <laughs> the thing is, if 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 we're not engaging with it on that level, on like a like a goofy fandomy level, what other level are we supposed to be engaging with it on? The story is so empty. Uh, uh, it. It really suffers from not knowing when stuff is worth to worth to be writing about. Like, yeah, you got we get it. We got it in one. Hurry up! <laughs> <There's> <laughs> other things to be doing. Uh, every little bit just like is rolled out super thin. It, it's that thing we've talked about with a lot of pastas, especially Reddit pastas, where like things are really, really belabored for no reason. Like, it, it does not benefit the story. Like, there's not a word count, guys. Like, there's no, no one is, like, checking how many words you have. You don't, it's <laughs> not, like, a long thing doesn't even look that good on a Reddit thing. I don't know what the impulse is. It's, it's to, to do the word count brag sort of thing and to hope to compile it into, like, a novel form and get big bucks. That's, like, a fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it did work out for this guy, though. Is the thing about it. I guess. Like, okay, the thing is that long-form content works. Like, like the reason why we have seen long-form stories take over short-form is because people desire content. They desire quantity. Yeah. Usually, for the most part, over quality. If you can put something out that lasts for a long time, people will continue engaging with it, even if it's not very satisfying or fulfilling, because it continues to keep them engaged, because it is something that they can continue it's to strange. come back to. It, 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 it is literally just comfort. Like, like yeah. that's a term that's come up 
in, in the last few years really strongly is comfort media, comfort right? character, comfort media, yeah. It's just like, it comfort you with horse hooves to death. <laughs> Discomfort me now. It becomes a thing of like expecting that all media is, or, or that all art is supposed to, the, the design of it is to make you feel good and a story that makes or you inter- like, feel bad. Yeah, that, that there is a failure that happens when something fails to entertain or or bring joy or happiness or, like, or that, satisfaction. That's not the purpose of every single thing that ever exists within art. <laughs> In fact, I entertaining and comfort should be like perhaps a rare like not not rare, just like contained in a smaller amount compared to what it is currently. People are uncomfortable and scared and alienated. So they seek for things that feel easy to consume. It's, it's like the discourse that's been going around lately vis-a-vis cartoon watching. Yeah. And people saying, hey, you should watch things other than cartoons. You should engage with things other than children's media. And, and people so saying, angry. how dare you? I am literally a poli-sci major and I have to deal with so many horrific things in my day-to-day life it's in like, college as a poli-sci major. <laughs> that sucks, I guess, but... You would also be able to, you'd have better tools to unpack things that harm you. Distress tolerance is something you learn and create through engagement of, like, art and, like, being alive. And it's a useful thing to have. It is not a moral failing for someone to decide, no, I don't want to engage with, like, serious art or, like, adult-oriented art. But... You just simply cannot participate in adult conversations if you don't engage with adult media. That's you the cannot thing. act like discourse around children's shows is equivalent to discourse around adult shows. Yeah. It is people, not built that way. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. If you want to just be comforted and entertain, then you have to enter the space of being comforted and entertained. People want to do that and then be like, okay, I'm going to discuss the political praxis of cartoon number five and and you can i guess do an analysis of that kind of thing like okay what kind of messages is this bringing to like a like a children's audience but just say like this like okay like like the steven universe discourse right is 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 the classic example of like stupid discourse getting out of control there's been blood on steven's (laughs) hands Steven's responsible for the rising of the alt-right. Whatever. <laughs> because he is is not practicing punitive justice. This is encouraging children to for, to hug Nazis. What yeah, are you talking about? Like, the fact that handed down trauma and like family expectations is represented in like a uh, you social alien like omni mind hive thing is equivalent to like real life fascism like i don't <laughs> think so i think we might need to take a step back yeah. and understand you're watching a cartoon based on sci-fi trips <laughs> like that's that's the problem fundamentally is is that it's not that you can't make critiques of a show you just cannot approach stuff that is not made for adults 
with the expectation that it should satisfy your adult palate or that it should stand up to certain kinds of scrutiny. Like you can't say, well, this thing failed to, to cover this topic in an appropriately like mature way. And it's like, well, it's for 12 year olds. It's for, yeah, it's, it's for, it's for small children. It's, (laughs) yeah, it's that thing where like people are adults and they look for like YA stuff. They always want, like, the adult YA. Then they're like, why isn't this YA satisfying me anymore? And it's like, because it's for 14-year-olds. <laughs> and you and, and you are 29, looking for something and that's then, not there. <laughs> and then, like, the new adult genre comes about. Oh, and new adult literally is just YA, YA with sex scenes. Yeah. But you can just get that online. There's nothing more adult or more mature about a lot of these books that, like, are advertising themselves as... Instagrafication. (laughs) Yeah. Like, oh god, I tried to read A Darker Shade of Magic. (laughs) You're so brave. A little while ago, I got probably a third of the way through the book, and then the thing with the girl who wants to be a pirate literally pissed me off so much that I had to stop reading. I put the book down because, like... There's a character in this book that is supposed to be a new adult book, and V. Uh-huh. Schwab gets really, really mad if you call it a YA book because it's not young adult, you guys. It's mature. That sounds so childish. In in this book, there is a character who is in like a um, like a Victorian England style setting and wants to be a pirate, wants to run away and live on the seas as a pirate. Because she romanticizes the the lifestyle and mm-hmm. the freedom and stuff like that. It's like, that is a modern interpretation of pirates that you are projecting onto people in a time period when pirates existed and would know yeah. how bad pirates are. <laughs> how bad, how much life of the sea sucks a lot. Like, yeah. Like, like people hey. don't, people romanticize it now because it's not a common thing, but like... <laughs> That pe- like people did that and it was bad. It's considered bad. <laughs> like even if you had like luxuries, like a lot of like soft noble, like sort of like not like land owning, but like you know, yeah. like wealthy people would go do that. It was often like a punishment. Like, like the the fact that she's supposed to be like a like a nineteen year old gentleman thief character who is like she's stealing and she lives in like a docked boat and stuff because she just loves the sea so much and she can't wait to someday buy a ship and run away and become a pirate it just is so it was so juvenile and it was such a misunderstanding of Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the historical perspective on i have a lot of thoughts about pirates i was i really was into pirate pirate stuff as a to do What kind of pirate-based fucking no sleeper pasta or whatever could we possibly find? So, if you ha- if you know of a pirate story, send us an email. <laughs> I was really into pirate stuff when I was younger. Like I learned all about like historical ships and like ship practices and like pirate codes between like different ships and stuff and like. Like, I I was really interested in Mm -hmm. pirates. So, like, seeing bad representations of pirates that are not supposed to be, like, parodical... Yeah. uh, ...really, really bothers me. Like, when I see something that is, like, inaccurate, it it 
instantly takes me out of it. And it's just like the lack of research on top of it. It's like the complete disinterest to do anything deeper than like held childhood beliefs of stuff, you know? That's icky. I don't know. If you want to write and you're not like interested in the topic you're writing, you don't want to like engage in deeper, you don't want to really do it. I don't know. There's also, okay, I I was thinking about this last time, but I didn't, like as as, as I was editing the last episode, Mm -hmm. I started thinking, there was this post going around that was basically the only way to do like good or effective media criticism is to only deal with what is literally in the text and that if you try to address what the text lacks as a criticism, you are essentially doing bad criticism. That's really weird. And I can't stop thinking about that. And and I've been thinking about it in relationship to gas stations specifically, Uh right? Yeah. And the fundamental problem with that, as, like, a way of thinking of critique and analysis, is that, like, okay, how do you discuss something lacking what you feel to be fundamentals? Sometimes it is good to be able to say, this doesn't have adequate character development, Mm -hmm. or, like, this doesn't have a very strong plot, or, like, this doesn't have very interesting descriptions. You need to be able to talk about something that lacks, even if you try to frame it in in a different way. It's just a reframing of saying that something is lacking in some way. What I feel like that stems from is people acting like this sort of space is accessible to, like, everyone. And, like, if you say, no, it's not accessible to everyone, you're, like, doing something morally incorrect. So this is trying to address that. But, like critiquing is a skill uh consumption i'm saying in quotes is a skill and like people develop a skill and like people sometimes need to hear that like this like vibe of like all art is like valid even if people are doing it in ways that lack found foundational skills and it's just like it just doesn't have like a foundational or fundamental thing here and it doesn't necessarily make the thing bad but sometimes it does like (laughs) well like like the thing about it is that bad and good are always value judgments and all all value yeah all value judgments are subjective and this uh, approach of saying like well you have to only address what is literally in the text for your analysis I, i feel like is is an attempt to turn analysis and and critique into objective oh measurements yeah. right like, because yeah. when you say that something lacks this thing that you expect it to have sometimes you can make unfair criticisms mm-hmm. of a piece of art because you were expecting it to have something that you shouldn't have expected mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. you, you were bringing that. preconceived desires and opinions to something that is not going to satisfy you in that way. And sure, mm-hmm. that that is one thing. But saying that you should only address what the text has, things that you perceive to be foundational or, or, or fundamental, because everyone has a slightly different view on what those fundamentals are and how they yeah. should be applied, right? Mm-hmm. 
they're saying you cannot come in with a preconceived expectation of what a story should look like, you know? When, when you say you can't judge something on what it lacks. Like, that's the entire basis of literature. It's quite, it's really <laughs> silly. It's like, yeah. we don't treat anything else like that. If I, if I served you a, a plate of, <laughs> you know, unseasoned pasta, and you said, this needs salt... It would be unreasonable for me to say, well, you can only judge this based on what's there on the plate, and the pasta <laughs> is perfectly cooked. I was later thinking when you said, like, that kind of sentiment was going around, it's like, that sounds, sounds like boiled potatoes, like, just, just <laughs> raw boiled potatoes. I mean, it, they'd be cooked because they're boiled. You know what I mean, though? That's like... <laughs> <laughs> like... Like raw dog raw. Yeah. You need some stuff sometimes. This is the, these are components <laughs> of a thing. People study structure and format and, like, sentence building and stanzas and stuff. And these are the things that make (laughs) a thing a thing in literature. Like, the canon of human history. And, like, you can defy convention and you can issue things that are supposed to be fundamental. And you can still end up with a piece of amazing art. Mm Mm-hmm. It is, you're, you're setting a challenge for yourself when you do that. Yeah. This is so, like, not terribly related to the gas station, but related to this topic. <laughs> We're talking about how people throw epic around, but, like, an epic is a yeah. really specific thing. Yeah, like, people will call anything epic fantasy just because it's a, a fantasy with a grand scope, when that's not what an epic is. It's what an epic can be, but, like, the Iliad and Beowulf... And the Mahabharata and Journey to the West are all very clearly epics while varying wildly in scale. Like, Beowulf is just a dude who fights a dragon. And on the other hand, you have the Mahabharata, which is about this, like, grand territory war with gods and kings. But now anything is an epic fantasy if it's, like, a high fantasy with world-level stakes. And it's not even written in, like, an epic tone, and people take this kind of like, like you don't need to have knowledge or understanding of this to critique things as long as you're reading the text as is. And I think mm-hmm. that's where a lot of like current impenetrably stupid stuff is coming from. <laughs> it's it's like this really extreme and assed version of like new criticism, uh, where yeah. it's saying not just that like you should be analyzing the text on its own merit, but that you should literally only analyze the text by itself in a vacuum and never reference anything outside of it for each text that you deal with. Oh, it sucks so much. It's It's very silly. It's, yeah, it's... Ugh. All this, and we don't have, like, cunty newspaper critics anymore. (laughs) At least people back then dealing with stuff like this had, like, you, you could tell people awful things. Like, okay, it's good that we don't do that as much anymore, but sometimes that's, like, maybe just a little bit. I want people who do, like, reviews and critiques and stuff to approach things like, the, like there are living people on the other side, but not, <laughs> like, in a networking sort of way, you know? I feel like there could be, like, a middle ground. There's also something I think about with my experience as a fan of music critics and also someone who is interested in literary criticism. 
Because the music community is really toxic. Like, mm-hmm. it's funny, but it's toxic. <laughs> and and in publishing spaces, I feel like there's a lot more eggshell walking. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's not toxic. I just think it's, like, the toxic on the other side. It's, like, <laughs> acidic instead. Like, it's it, it tends to be a more passive-aggressive kind of toxicity. <laughs> like, the toxicity comes from the fact that you are discouraged from being honest and speaking your mind, where in the music scene you tend to be encouraged to speak your mind to the point of making someone, like, cry. It's like when when an animal has venom, it can use freely versus, (laughs) like, when something is just poisonous to eat. (laughs) There's a lot of vague, like, I guess homophobic ish marks that people yeah. were making to to Jack during the Christmas episode characters make a lot of homophobic comments to Jack like in in a sort of like snide way the story is often very homophobic yeah like and and it's done really flippantly but like the thing that it makes me think of is supernatural like the way that there were so many <laughs> Yeah. jokes about Dean and about how Dean is like obviously closeted and blah 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 and like ooh you've been clocked and yeah oh you're so butch and blah 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 that it just like comes off like he actually is uh, after in some... the closet at a certain point like <laughs> however that one quote goes like there's only like, so many homophobic jokes you can make before a character is just gay yeah like, <laughs> like before it just sounds like pe- like a bunch of people have independently noticed that this person is gay yeah <laughs> like so you know let, let, let's see how much that carries through as we okay. go forward <laughs> I like, I, another thing this is not in the same department but about gas station story because we're talking about it on this podcast mm-hmm. the cop lady i keep like saying very directly yeah i think it's interesting that she's like a trigger happy definitely has a kill count sort of cop assigned (laughs) to this gas station region it's like (laughs) oh we've got to get rid of this person we sent her to like this this area of america like okay how does someone get transferred from brooklyn to the deep south first of all did she move here i like like, was she she banished what i think she was banished here i think she was set here because she i I hope she's like an fbi plant or something well this would be fun i the author i think tries to get shippy with them later and it's sort of like boo yeah it's sort of like teased here and then like turned down but it's sort of like a, a flirt thing happening i think later there's a general sort of like positivity towards the police force yeah. in this that like reads it's really icky. badly in 2023 yeah <laughs> and it makes a lot of other stuff fall flat because you can't really be like oh yeah we're talking about racism and stuff and just like there's just <laughs> one part he makes rosa both like we're supposed to think rosa's stupid right that was the vibe i got and where rosa's like does like a microaggression to the cop and the cop is like what's an o'brien supposed to look like and that's pretty good but like you haven't earned (laughs) that in this story (laughs) (laughs) like who are you to be trotting that out like that also as if like new york cops aren't some of the most racist people on the planet (laughs) 
And that's why she got banished here, because she keeps trying to be, like, <laughs> anti-racism, but also, like, she loves to kill, so they sit her down here. <laughs> I love this character that we're creating out of nothing. <laughs> Our OC. <laughs> She's, like... She's a big, she's a bigger role in Finding Vanessa's, but I remember a lot of her. Like the fact that I didn't read Finding Vanessa must be why I felt like really confused when they started suddenly talking about O'Brien. Like this is a character we should know really well. Yeah, she's <laughs> she she. I think she get, she must get introduced. Uh, I was thinking Finding Vanessa happens later, so I was confused by the timeline. But she gets introduced. In no, Finding yeah, v- it, it, it yeah. happens like. Because I have the, the, like, YouTube playlist open, Mm -hmm. I see, like, everything in sort of the order that it's meant to be experienced in, more or less. Yeah, there's this really weird... She's introduced in Finding Vanessa, and her and Jack hang out by a diner, and they, like, trade information, and it's like, why? She's a gas station attendant. (laughs) What the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) And, like, we meet back up with Jack towards the end of Finding Vanessa after, like, this really weird sort of, like... It, like road like chase sequence or whatever there's a mm-hmm. puppet that, that's why we're finding vanessa <laughs> like i know that jerry shows up in finding vanessa because for some reason yeah. he was like dating this teenager yeah how does he have the time Which for sucks. that that sucks <laughs> he's busy doing other things why is he so far into town he lives in the woods like did he get an apartment does he still live in the <laughs> gas station uh, he just like exists in that story. He exists in that story with Vanessa, so he so the author can be like he's not in a homo gay relationship with Jack. <laughs> like literally, the author is doing so much to try and like beat the gay allegations, <laughs> and then writing Spencer. <laughs> There's nothing you can do about that. Well, it looks like we're going to wrap it up there for tonight. Let us know your thoughts on Tales from the Gas Station. Give us a like and share us with your friends. Next episode, we continue with Death at the Gas Station and the Gas Station's Halloween story. This has been the Creepy Pasta Book Club. Thank you and good night.